Hello, my name is Jamie Green, and welcome to another episode of 1% Wiser. Today I'm speaking with the enormously talented composer and multi-instrumentalist, Lucas Cantor. His work has won many awards, including two Emmys for the Olympics in 2008 and 2012. And he co-produced a cover of Everyone Wants to Rule the World by Lord for the film Hunger Games and Catching Fire. He's also the host of his own popular podcast called Book Society. And most recently, he wrote an ending to Schubert's Unfinished Symphony. To do this, he worked alongside an artificial intelligence from the tech company Huawei. Now, this is really fascinating, so we spend the bulk of our conversation exploring his work with this AI, how he worked with it to finish the symphony, and what he learned along the way about the state of the technology, about creativity, about the intersection of art and technology, and about his craft of composition. So without further delay, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lucas Cantor. I am here with Lucas Cantor. Uh, Lucas, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Thanks. So I want to talk about this incredibly cool project that you've done, but let me take a second and set the scene for for the listeners. If I understand this correctly, you've been working or you worked with an AI to finish an unfinished symphony that was started about 200 years ago. Is that about right? Yeah, that's the, the broad strokes. Okay. <laughs> All right. So let's take a, a step back from there. Who was uh, Franz Schubert and what is his unfinished symphony? Well, Franz Schubert was the most prolific composer of all time. He wrote more in 18 years of active writing than J.F. Bach wrote in 50. So he was definitely a genius by pretty much any measure. He, he wrote so prolifically, in fact, that he one day a friend of his took a piece that he had written off of his piano, had it copied, and showed it to him three days later. And Schubert said, oh, this is nice. Who wrote this? So he was such a prolific composer that he was writing faster than he could even remember what he was writing. And there's this romantic idea that I mean, just the phrase unfinished symphony is evocative, right? Because a symphony is something right. that is beautiful and intricate and is an expression of someone's artistic soul, or so we'd like to think. And the idea that one could be started but not finished is is kind of profound and evocative and interesting. And so I think that when you hear the phrase unfinished symphony, you think of a genius with his hair all frazzled in the middle of the night, burning the last nub of the candle and not able to finish the piece before he dies. And that right. was not the case with Schubert's Eighth Symphony. He just, like I said, he was very prolific. He wrote all the time. He often forgot about what he was working on. And I think my theory is either he felt like it was done or he just, he just abandoned it and forgot about it. There's two movements. So symphony has four movements. There are two movements to the eighth symphony and there's a sketch of a third movement and Schubert nerds, sorry, Schubert scholars postulate that the fourth movement is actually the entract to Rosamond, which is an opera that he wrote. And so they think that they've pieced it together and there have been other finishings of Schubert's symphony where someone orchestrated his sketch of the third movement and then played Rosamond at the end. And those are fine. But I, I think that, I don't know what happened with the symphony. Nobody really knows. I think the evidence that it wasn't a uh, fit of genius that was interrupted by his untimely death is simply that there was a completed ninth symphony. So he didn't, he didn't stop writing after this symphony. He just abandoned this particular project. But I think it stands on its own as two movements, and I it is performed that way often. And I really enjoyed adding two movements to it and trying to, you know, hearing it to 
hearing a possible completion of it. I think it was a fun project. I don't know if it was a definitive project. I don't know if the definitive finishing of a work as complicated as a symphony is even possible. We tried, and I think we got an answer to a very complicated question. And so it was the third and the fourth movement that you were focusing on, right? That was it was yes. or just the fourth. Yeah, okay. Well, the the first two movements, Schubert, are, are, yeah, are finished right. and copied, and you know people play them already. Right. Yeah. And and how did you come to have an AI involved in it, or what did what exactly does that mean? Well, it's more accurate to say that the AI got me involved. The the Huawei the the cell phone technology company that you non-U.S. citizens will be familiar with, but is basically an unknown company in the United States, yeah. decided to do this project. And the technologist that was involved on the AI side, we, we knew each other. I think he at the time was teaching at Goldsmiths College in London, where a friend right. of mine was also teaching. So they were colleagues. And we, you know, we, we'd, we'd had some beers. We just knew each other. And, and so they, they wanted to originally just have Huawei's Mate 20 Pro phone finish the symphony. And this sounds like a great idea in a PR department, right? But yeah. the logistics of getting a symphony onto a page are quite complicated. And um, probably, I don't know if they're beyond the reach of a phone, but they're certainly beyond the, it's just not worth it for someone to program all of that information, frankly. Yeah. So, so yeah, they ran into problems where they were like, well, the phone's spitting out some music but you know what do we do now and it's not mm -hmm. spitting it out in you know i mean it's it's not spitting out parts and a score so we gotta right, figure yeah. something out and and it wasn't it wasn't initial how do i say this delicately it wasn't really working <laughs> yeah so well when i came on board we we changed around a lot of the parameters of how we asked it to give us information and how and what we trained it on yeah and we had very little time to do this but i think the big breakthrough was that the technology itself worked very well but i think the yeah. big breakthrough was that they were training it on full orchestral pieces like audio of full orchestral pieces and i think that was just too much information for it and so i thought let's give it a bunch of monophonic melodies and ask it to give us monophonic melodies back and i will figure out the orchestration because i think Got that, it. You know, the, yeah the, I, I don't know if this metaphor makes any sense but i i keep it makes sense to me and i don't know if it makes sense to anyone else but it was like, I felt like by giving it the entire, by giving it just a recording of a piece of orchestral music, it was like showing it the facade of a building and saying, design me something like this. And then it designs you something like that, but like there's no floors and there's no elevators and there's no bathrooms because it can't possibly know that all of those things are necessary to build a building because it's just looking at the outside of it. And right. hearing a recording of orchestral music is really just the end product of an incredibly complicated process that is non-obvious that is not obviously reconstructed by hearing the finished product so right right so how did it work when when you refined the process and you gave it these monophonic melodies what, what happened then the tech the tech guys came back to you with like a few options that the that the computer had spit out or yeah uh, a lot of options like yeah a lot of options they sent me uh i don't know like a I don't know, 45 minutes or something of yeah. MIDI files that went in a bunch of different directions. And some of them were really beautiful and some of them didn't really make any sense. And we kept sort of refining it and telling it, yes, more of this, less of that. And eventually we got a bunch of melodies that I that I thought were were good and that I thought worked. And some of them were a little bit more modern than 
Schubert, but I, I thought that maybe what the machine was suggesting, and this might be me reading into it, but I thought that maybe it was suggesting that Schubert might have finished this later in his career. Because Schubert was right at the end. So the, the four marble bust composers, right, are Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, and uh, Brahms, maybe not Brahms, uh, the other one, Haydn. Uh, no, no. I, so I'm talking about specifically in this period in Vienna yeah. and uh, the like the, the Joseph II period when Vienna was really the center of music. And Mozart was the, the first of these composers. Salieri taught all of them, which was interesting, but, or he didn't, he didn't teach uh, Haydn, but I don't think he taught Haydn. I don't know. Classical music <laughs> nerds can correct me on this. I don't think he did. But but Salieri taught taught all of them. And Mozart was the first one and Schubert was the last one. So Mozart was uh, Mozart had died young. Beethoven was the, you know, the dawn of classical music composition for uh, about 30 years. And then Schubert and Beethoven overlapped by a few years of, of active years. Beethoven was really in the decline, decline as Schubert was, was coming up. And they, they met each other, apparently. And Beethoven was deaf at that time, but looked at one of Schubert's scores and on his on his deathbed and said, you know, this guy's the real deal. And yeah, this is, this is an aside, but one of the most interesting things about Schubert and also Schubert only lived to be 32. So he was only writing from about the age of 18 to about the age of 32, writing professional music. And so, and he wrote so much that there, there is there, I think Tyler Cowan says that if there was one person he could give another, go back and give penicillin to, because he, he died of syphilis. He died of a totally preventable disease today. But if there was one person he could go back and give penicillin to, it would be Schubert, just to see what his artistic output would be like. But I agree with that, because Schubert died at the end of the period of music that he was really writing in the style of. And had he lived another 30 years, he would have seen another style evolve. Or maybe he would have stopped that style from evolving because he would have been so strongly writing in the style that he grew up in. But I like to think when I was working on the Unfinished Symphony, I thought that maybe Schubert would have heard some of these new sounds coming out of Russia and coming out of other places in Europe and incorporated them into his Unfinished Symphony later in life. Maybe he would have realized oh, I kind of painted myself into a corner with this symphony by the standards of 18th century Vienna, but by the standards of 19th century Europe, I could actually do something with this. And so that is the angle that I took to a good amount of criticism and an equal, maybe greater amount of praise. Mm. So, so yeah, that's where we're at. And maybe this is hard to, to quantify, but in the, in the kind of finished product, if I it, maybe this is the wrong way to think about it, but is is it kind of like the the melody came from the AI and then you worked with that melody and corrected it to make it more in the right style and and then filled in all the other instruments? Is that kind of how to think? That's about, about it? right. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. some the main melodies, some of them. Um, you know, yeah. some of them were some of the some of the music in there I just wrote because it was just a stylistic way to connect idea yeah. A to idea B. And I just knew, like, you know, I thought if this is how Schubert would connect these two things, approximately. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm curious, having worked with an AI, I mean, I guess just from what you've said so far, it doesn't sound like uh, AIs are going to be replacing composers anytime soon. I don't think so. I, I mean, I'm, that's, I'm writing a book about the subject, and I, I don't know if it's even really possible for AI to replace composers, just because... Part of what makes a composer a composer is that they're human beings, but there are a lot of, there's a lot of music out there that can be written 
by an AI now. So it's it's kind of a it's a question of definitions, more of a question of philosophy. I mean, is a composer just some entity that I mean, is a composer a human who writes music? In, mm. If if yes, then AI can't replace them because AI can be conscious, maybe, but they can't be human. And I, that's a big maybe. That's a capital maybe. Mm-hmm. But I won't say that they can't be conscious because then the definition, the question becomes what is consciousness. But let's say that AIs can be conscious. They can't actually be human in the sense that they are born of a mother and die. And so so if that's what a composer is, then yeah, an AI won't be able to be a composer. If a composer is just an entity that creates music, then AI, there already are AI composers. And there are AI composers that are, by the standards of human composition, adequate. You know, there's a, there, there are AI composers that can write the kind of music that you already hear on reality shows and under underneath YouTube videos. And th- that already exists. You, you can already, right. you can go online and, and get that music today. Right. Do you think it's possible for AIs to be creative or is that something that is uniquely human? Or is it is it so the AI is just reconstituting what it already knows in new ways? So Jeffrey Jefferson talked about this in his Lister lecture. So okay. Jeffrey Jefferson's Lister lecture, which is a fun thing to say. But this was in, I want to say 1956. He was elected to the chair of some grand university and he gave a lecture that was named after uh, Lister, he of Listerine and antiseptic and so on. Of Great course. scientist. And he talked about the idea that a computer could, you know, it's not enough for a computer to write music. It would have to know that it's written it and to know that it came from feelings and emotions that it actually felt. And this was, a, and then, and then he, he built rhetorically built this speech up to the Hamlet. Oh, what a piece of work is man quotation. And that's how he ended his lecture. Very powerful. Everybody surely stood up and cheered. And this was in response to the, Manchester Mark II computer, a computer with the computing power of your microwave, but the size of your house, which had just found Mersenne primes up to some absurd number, right? And a, a feat that they thought was previously un, undoable. Undoable. Great word. I was doing so well. Anyway, so uh, just, to, just to, you know, uh, just to, to take me down off the lofty heights of uh, Dr. Dr. Jeffrey Jefferson. So yeah. impossible was the word I was looking for. So a feat that they thought was previously impossible. And Jeffrey Jefferson gave this great speech and everybody, you know, applauded. And Alan Turing wrote in his uh, famous computing and machine intelligence paper, he uh, wrote a response to this speech, which essentially was that Jeffrey Lister doesn't seem to be, doesn't seem like he'll be happy or convinced that a computer is doing something unless he can know that the computer is feeling and thinking and doing all these things that he would be. So basically, Dr. List, Dr. Um, Jefferson will not be happy unless he can be. And so his position that human beings, only human beings can be creative and that, a, that an AI is not going to be able to be a composer or be an artist unless it is truly being creative and truly having emotions is really just solipsism. Right. So it's just the belief that only the thoughts in your head are real. And I think I think that's true. I think that's a pretty strong argument that, you know, it's, it's very easy to say that you have to have emotions in order to be creative, but it is not at all clear what that means. Right. Right. It's, it seems like the list of things that is unique or that, that humans can uniquely do and that computers can't do is kind of getting shorter. And, you know, there's a, 
Yeah, intelligence becomes, I think this is uh, Ray Kurzweil, but I could be wrong, but intelligence is just, or intelligence, the, the line that delineates human intelligence from machine intelligence is just what computers can't do yet. I mean, the line used to be, you know, finding Mersenne primes is something that a human mathematician wouldn't even try to do today. I mean, they would do it as an as an academic exercise, but a computer is much better at doing it. Yeah. And the the you know the playing chess was one of the was one of the benchmarks, right? That we thought, well, a computer will never be able to play chess. Not only can it beat a grandmaster at chess, it can beat a grandmaster at Go, which is a game that is you know many times more complicated than chess. And they say there are more positions, there are more possible positions on a Go board than there are atoms in the universe. So right. it's an incredibly complicated game. And there are many other things that computers do that you that you wouldn't have even 20 years ago thought they would be able to do. But it seems like the line of – it seems like competence as a measure for intelligence is going to lead us to the inevitable comp- conclusion that computers are very intelligent because they seem to be getting more and more competent. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I go and, and chess distinction. I, I remember reading – about the chess, you can basically kind of number crunch all the best position for whatever is on the board at the time. But in Go, because of what you said about the number of possible positions being so great, you you can't do that, basically. You have to use some other method to decide what the next position or the next thing to do is. Yeah, Lise Dole, the um, the champion, the world champion of, of Go, quit after he played the computer. He and I think that was a bit of a cop out. I think what he said and why he did it is right. a bit of a cop out because just because a computer can do it doesn't mean that humans can't do it. And you know, a computer doesn't probably have fun doing it. But I don't know. That's his thing. I think I, I've heard computers. I've heard music written by computers that's pretty good, and it's going to change. You know, now that I'm saying this, I, I guess that Go though, like what I do as a composer, there's a product at the end that is mm. subjective, and even if I were competing against an AI, it is likely that there would be some people that would like my music better. And I, right. I, I don't say that because I'm better than an AI. I just say that if you take any two composers, sure. some people will like one of their music better than others, right? And so, and I don't know if the same holds true for Go, right? Because it's a because it's a zero sum game, you know, where you, you either win or you don't win. And I guess there's probably beautiful ways to execute go patterns that that are probably interesting to enthusiasts, but music is a bit more universal where I think, I mean, it's cultural, I think, but it's, it's a bit more universal where you can understand, you can appreciate music. I don't know if I could appreciate a beautiful go game, but I think someone with my level of understanding of music could appreciate, or with that level of understanding of music could appreciate a good piece of music. Right. You mentioned, you mentioned a book. Do you (laughs) want to talk, is this the subject of your book? The, the interaction here between, machine and, and music or or do you want to tell us a little bit about what it yes, is about <laughs> i'm so glad that came through in my description because i've been i've been really struggling with so i've i've sold this book i can say now i think you might be the first place i've announced this but uh, i have a oh, publisher fantastic. it's diversion books an amazing publisher in the u.s that does a lot of uh a lot of really great nonfiction. and <clears throat> the thing i have written on my desk right now is the power of narrative to shape reality so what the thesis of my book is, I think essentially is the, it's about, if I were to say what it's about, it's about the history of technology and the arts and how they have co-evolved over the last um, 40,000 years, not just the last 40 years. And 
that the the way we conceive this relationship and the way that this relationship actually plays out is mostly due to the stories we tell about these two things. So the you know the reality is that both technology and music and the arts are just human inventions. They're just things that humans make and we ascribe one set of ideas to one of them and a different set of ideas to another one. But the reality is that I, I don't think anyone could argue that Steve Jobs was a creative genius. He worked in the area of technology, but I don't think you could really compare someone like Jobs to someone like Schubert in a meaningful way. They both did amazing things in their field, and both of their fields are things that humans invented. So how how we conceive of... So, so there's a there's an argument to be made that if an AI becomes a better composer than a human, that's not different than a human becoming being a composer because we invented this AI. Right. So, you know, it's a, but but it is a narrative convention to think of artificial intelligence as a character in the story with the same level of insight and humanity and emotion and volition as a human. And that's just a convention that's evolved in the last, you know, maybe thousand years. I mean, music used to be a character in the story, but it was personified with muses. Poetry used to be, you know, all these things that humans do used to just be personified by gods. And we are still using, we still sort of personify technology that way, although in a, in a more atheistic way. But we, we, we do treat it like a god in pretty much every meaningful sense. Yeah, people who otherwise are quite atheistic, as you say, can sound quite religious when talking about technology or, or uh, other things like that. So, yeah, um, To the point where they think that AI can help you live forever. Right. You know, I mean, this is what a lot of these tech billionaires and Ray Kurzweil specifically, who takes a you know ridiculous regimen of vitamins daily to be able to live to the age of intelligent machines where he'll be able to upload his consciousness to the cloud. This is this is not that different from 10th century Catholicism. Right. Right. <laughs> it's quite, quite ironic. And it, so this is a fascinating area. I mean, when you're looking at technology and you're looking at art or music, I, I think of technology as something that has, that can be progress. There, there can be progress in technology. There is progress in technology. Um, and it's something that gets better over time. As at least it seems to. Would you say that there is such a thing as progress in music or art? Yeah, huh. I don't, that's a, a loaded question, Jamie. It's hard to. I think yes. I, like I think the that easy there is questions such a thing. on this podcast. No, I think there is progress. I think that it's it's a. Uh, if progress means more than one thing, so for I mean everybody who has ever lived thinks okay maybe not everyone who has ever lived but probably everyone who has ever lived thinks that the young people's music is crap and the music that they listen to when they were younger is real music you know and and so what seems like progress to one generation seems like regression to another generation but right. it's very easy to forget that that has been playing out for as long as as far as far as my research can tell that idea that like we're getting further away from something is that the older generation thinks we're getting further away from something and the younger generation thinks we're getting closer to something seems to be universal. And so I don't know if there's like, 
so, so progress implies that there's like an answer to music, you know, and I think that belief is also what makes people think that there might be a, a AI composer that is better than a human composer, but better is just a relative term. It's, it's subjective. And so progress implies that there's some, there's some day somewhere in the future where we're going to finish music right. and we're working towards that and we're getting closer to it every day. But that is not the case. I mean, the way music sounds today is largely due to technologies that were invented 200 years ago. The fact that we have pop music, which is essentially music concrete and a pastiche of every imaginable sound that you can possibly record is a direct result. The way that pop music sounds is a direct result of recording technology. And without recording, pop music would not sound the way it is today. Music would still be different than it was 150 years ago, but it wouldn't sound the way that it sounds today. And recording is a non-necessary and non-obvious device to include in the world of music. And so the way that 20th century music and therefore 21st century music sounds is heavily influenced and primarily influenced by the fact that recordings exist, that recordings sound a certain way, and that everybody has access to them. And so this is a, you could think of this as a detour that we've taken that may or may not be the right road for music. And it might be that having um, having music be something that is ephemeral and only available in a live setting is better, and that we've gone down a horrible road with uh, recording. Or it might be that this is the best way for music to go. Or it might be that there is no answer to this question. It's subjective. You know, this just is what it is. Yeah. So I don't know that music makes progress. I mean, it definitely gets, it definitely changes over time, and it's change. It, it changes usually or changes almost exclusively due to the technology that's used to create it. Right. And do you think that then AI could be just this new technology that creates new styles of music, perhaps that we haven't heard yet, or is it just brings us in a whole new direction musically? Well, it is already. I mean, there's more music in the world, there's more recorded music on Spotify than you could listen to in a lifetime. So right now there are, I think it's seven, 70 million songs on Spotify, something like that. Some insane number. So I did this calculation yeah. once and it's, so right now, if you, assuming that each song averages out to about three minutes, right? If you were to try to listen to every piece of music that is currently on Spotify today, it would take you 500 years. And if music was being added at the rate that it's being added today over those 500 years, by the time you would listen to everything 500 years from now, you would have listened to about 1% of what was available. So there is no way for a human being to listen to all of the music that is available. That also means that you will, you, Jamie and me, Lucas will die without having heard music that we would have absolutely loved. Like it, it is out there. We could listen to it right now, but we won't and we will die never having heard it. And there's and the the way that we get this music if we use digital music or even if we well I mean you can't shop at a record store because you know how many of them are there but the way that we listen to music when we log into iTunes or Spotify or YouTube or all the places that we get music is governed by AI it's governed by an algorithm and it is serving you things that it thinks you will like and you will have to dig really really hard and really really deeply to find things that the algorithm does not want to suggest to you. Um, and most people won't do that, and most people can't do that, and almost everyone won't do that all the time. So AI has already changed the way yeah. that music 
exists because popular music gets more popular. And to mm. some degree, it's always been that way, but it has been amplified by the, the rise of technology. Right. So something like Spotify is kind of almost making taste more homogenous in a way. Baby Shark has 10 billion views. I've never seen on Baby YouTube. Shark. Well, you're I've, one of the one only of the people few. on earth. Do, do you know? Do you know the song though? Uh, I I think I do. Yes. You well, can think of it. Yeah. So yeah, right. I so, so I mean, you've it has ten billion views on YouTube. Right. So um, that is a if you had released that as a record, I don't think you would have sold ten billion records. I don't think you would have sold a million. But because it's because it's catchy and it's something that kids like, and you know you you don't own it, you can just watch it. It has, it is one of the, I think it might be the most viewed video on YouTube at the moment. If not, it's, it's a 10 billion. It's in the top 10. It's got to um, be up there. It's got to yeah. be up there. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit. I'd love to hear a little bit about your process when you're, when you're composing. Cause one thing I can, I was noticing when I was listening to some of the music on your, on your website is just the insane diverse range that you're able to write. And I'd love to hear a bit about when you're writing for film, for example, how do you think about the emotions that you're trying to convey with music? And how do you, how do you try to translate that in the, a scene into, into music? Yeah, there's the, the different styles that I write in are like my favorite part of being a composer and also slightly the bane of my career, because it's hard to explain to someone what you do if what you do is like a lot of different things. And what I, what I enjoy artistically and creatively is being able to play a lot of different styles authentically. And, you know, I get, I really get into them and all that stuff. And so, so that's fun, but it also makes it hard for me to present myself to clients. So I have some clients that think that what I do is like hard hitting, big orchestral trailer music. And that is in fact, one of the things that I do. And I have some clients that think that I'm a jazz guy and that all I do is jazz. And I have some clients that think that I'm really good at like small ensemble string quartet things. And these are all things that I enjoy doing and things that I love to do. But, but I think I've been passed over for jobs by, you know, client who thinks that I'm a small string quartet guy when what they need is a big orchestral thing. But I am, you know, I I do all those things. So on the one hand, that's, uh, but artistically, it's just so fulfilling to be able to work in different genres. And, you know, it's the same with like what they tell you about social media as if you're, if you're like vertical, and you just, you know, if you start a YouTube channel that is just about digital watches, you'll probably grow really fast because there's a small amount of people that will spend five minutes a day listening yep. to stuff about digital watches. But if you try to be about everything, if you try to be Joe Rogan, where you have a thing about everything, it's going to be hard to grow unless, you know, you're Joe Rogan. So, right. um, so I, I suffer from that a little bit, but, and how do I put emotions into a scene or how do I, how do I think about emotional beats and music? I mean, there are, a lot of it is craft, like film score craft. There are, there are ways. They're, they're cliches, essentially. Like there are, there are, there are, there are obviously many creative things that you can do in film music, but there are also things that you just. And I, I don't mean you, Jamie. I mean I do mean you, Jamie. But also you, just any listener. There are things that if you just thought about, you would realize that they're the same every time. I mean when you, when you have a when you have a a person in if when there's some tension right like someone is in like a police procedural and they're going down a hallway with their gun out 
I don't know if they have guns in UK police procedurals, but with their billy club out and they, they're going down the hallway and they don't know if there's someone around the corner. You're going to hear some kind of like ticking clock sound in the background, like not necessarily a clock, but some like sustained rhythmic thing that is going to, that is going to ratchet up your tension. And that's something that is physiologically will ratchet up your tension. When you are at the end of a scene, but the arc of the scene is not over, that's probably going to end on a five chord, right? That's probably going to end on a chord that doesn't want to resolve. And it's going to go to commercial on that chord. When you're, uh, when you see an emotional beat in a, in a scene, when one character is thinking one thing and then something is said, and now their perception of the plot has changed, you'll, you'll usually hear a key change. And so these are all things that are cliches, but also have become a bit of, our language. And, and there's, I mean, there's scholarship on this that isn't related to music specifically, but Marshall McLuhan, Marshall McLuhan, that's his name, right? A book called from cliche to, what is it? From, I have it here somewhere. Anyway, it's about, wait, is that wait, it? Yes. From cliche to archetype. It's right behind me. So from cliche to archetype, archetype. And one of the things he argues is that these things Things start as cliches and eventually become the way that we see the world. And so if I were to score a film in whatever way I wanted, without regard for the past or the audience's expectations, which is, I think, what a lot of people, without thinking about it, think that composers do, is just put their feeling into a film. If I were to do that, the score would make no sense and the film would make no sense. And you would hate it. But so what the art of film music is, is using those cliches that I guess you could argue some of which have become archetypes in a creative and interesting way. And that's the same way the stories are told. I mean, if, if 2021, if there was a theme for 2021, it would be, you know, existing intellectual property. I mean, every movie that came out in 2021 pretty much was a reboot or a sequel. And, and that's because people are, you know, it was a difficult year and people are comforted by stuff that they know. And so you can get away with like Mika Levy is a great composer who wrote a score to this movie called Under the Skin. And that score doesn't follow any of the like rules of film score. And it's a disturbing and strange movie. And that was the whole point of the movie is that they wanted it to be disturbing and strange. But, you know, if I, if I, you know, if you saw a, a bad guy in a film and they started playing a French horn line that went up and was sort of a stratospheric French horn line, you would just be confused. You wouldn't think, oh, wow, that's innovative. You would think that's odd and doesn't make any sense. So right. uh, does that answer your question or was that? Just yeah, no, that's, no, that's, that's great. That's really interesting. <laughs> on, a, on a completely different note, you are a man of, of quite diverse talents and interests. And I see I've, I've been listening a bit to your podcast, uh, Book Society. Yeah. So I'm curious, what has been your, your fate or one of the favorite books that you've read as part of this podcast or, or you've come into contact with through the podcast yeah the so the podcast is every week i interview a distinguished guest about basically about their favorite book so i ask them to choose a book that is either influential to them or that they just really like or that they know a lot about and then i read it and we talk about it for an hour and it's uh, it started as a covid project where i just missed talking about books and so i would have zooms with my friends and then I thought, well, you know, I'm kind of in show business with a little bit of tweaking. This could be a show. And so so I, I started calling up friends and I realized the reason 
when I knew I was onto something with this podcast was when like the, my first thought was that everyone was going to pick Middlemarch, you know, that everyone was going to have the same favorite book. And that was, and that, you know, I was going to do five episodes and realize that there were only five books out there. And I have not yet so far in 50 episodes had one person suggest the same book as anyone else. It ha- hasn't happened yet. And so, and I've, and I've discovered so many books that I would never have in a million years read. Like it, it, it solves the problem yeah. for me a little bit of, you know, there are books out there that I would die never having read that I absolutely would right. have loved. This is kind of solving that problem for me. And books that I never would have encountered. I don't know. Let me divide this up into two categories. Yeah. Um, one will be books that I, that I, you know, that weren't books that I just never would have found that I really enjoyed. And one of those is Robert G. Ingersoll's Some Mistakes of Moses. And this was suggested by Zach Murphy, who's a brilliant art director and just like an all-around brilliant artistic guy who lives in New York, who I know. And he chose this book, Some Mistakes of Moses. Robert G. Ingersoll was going around the Chautauqua circuits in the 1890s, delivering in the 1860s, 70s, and 90s, delivering lectures about atheism and debunking things in the Bible, in the books of Moses. And you got to imagine this was a more dangerous proposition in 19th right. century America than it would be today. <laughs> but he makes a lot of the same arguments that Christopher Hitchens made 150 years later. So uh, I never would have found this book. It was great to sort of connect with someone who was really being a champion for atheism hundreds of years ago, a hundred years ago. So that was kind of an unexpected, interesting one. The second category is uh, guests that really surprised me. So one of my, one of my favorite episodes is with a guy named Cliff Fluitt, who's a brilliant music lawyer in the UK. And I know him because we've spoken on AI panels together and we see each other at conferences. I had no idea he had any kind of literary bent. I just knew he was a really brilliant guy. And so he is obsessed with the book Watchmen, the, the comic book, the, the graphic novel. And we did an episode about it and he was telling me like things about individual frames that related to other frames later. I mean, he just is obsessed with it. And just to see someone's obsession who I knew was brilliant, but That's had amazing. no idea he was interested in this was great. And then Wonderworks is a book that I ended up, I'm now friends with the author, I would say. We're, we're buddies these days, but it's this brilliant book about um, how we understand narrative and devices that authors have used throughout time he calls them literary inventions to allow us to 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 make us feel certain things and it's essentially one of the things i love about angus fletcher's work is that he says that the the greek philosophers were sort of reacting to the sophists who were the another group of philosophers who really dug into the nature of language and how to use that nature to prove any point basically making the language the focus rather than the rhetoric the focus. And these philosophers kind of hated these sophists, but they were onto something. And there is something to um, being able to use language to to prove your point. And so he really discusses that in great depth. And I love that book. And he also, I love that book, reached out to him and he came on as a guest. And so, so yeah, that's three. I could go on and on. I, the podcast has just been like really fun for me. And what I tell listeners is that if you're looking for that next book to read, if you just pick three books that we've covered on the podcast, I guarantee you'll love one of them. You'll probably but, like all three of them, but like one of them will be like a book that changes your life. Yeah, that's awesome. It's uh, it's very sad to think that you'll oh, we will all die with books unread that we would love to read and songs we wouldn't we would love to hear. But it's great to to hear to to get some new ideas of things to read and things to listen to. So yeah, Lucas, we're coming almost to the end of our time. So I want to just wrap up with one 
Final question. I saw also that you're chief composer at the Melbourne Deep Learning Group. So I, I'd love to hear, like, I'm just so fascinated how you work with these other technologists and what what exactly does this does it involve there? Um, yeah. Well, the Melbourne Deep Learning Group is my friend, Dan, uh, Dr. Daniel Murphy's lab. He also was a podcast guest and made me read a Tyler Cowen book that I definitely did not understand. But I, I actually had listeners reach out and say, like, did you read this book? And I was like, yeah, I read it twice. I did not understand it. So that's why we had the guest on. Right. Um, so, but uh, he's the he's the head of the Melbourne Deep Learning Group. And we're friends. You know, we've been friends for years. Yeah. And I, I'm just sort of a consultant and uh, if he has music questions, they ask me. I'm not doing any like deep music work with them, but but I am the uh, but I'm the guy. You know that we have a he has. I guess I'm involved in it, but he has this really interesting project called Meta Uni, which is a university in Roblox. So if you know All Roblox, right. it's you know basically a kids game platform. But he has built. Uh, this uh, node called the Rising Sea that has all these different nodes attached to it that you can go to, and there are like you can you can see lectures from really amazing professors on high level mathematics, and these are all wow. on YouTube, but you can also attend them live. And there is a uh, in the Rising Sea node, there is a Lucas Cantor Music Building that is uh, designed as an amphitheater, and it's actually in the sky. You have to teleport to it. And I've given I give a lecture there on musical temperament, which is. The, the way we tune instruments. So that's a really interesting project. So I guess that's what I do as the chief composer at the Melbourne Deep Learning Lab is occasionally give lectures in uh, the metaverse. That's awesome. Great to have a, a amphitheater in the sky named after you in the metaverse. That's a pretty I think cool. So. That's a pretty cool, pretty cool thing to to do. Well, Lucas, it's been it's been great to chat with you. I just want to wrap up asking you when will people be able to read your book and <laughs> and where can people learn more about your work. Well, when will you be able to read my book? I am in the process of writing it. It is scheduled for release about this time next year. So, you know, winter of 2023. And this is my first time writing a book. So in my mind, I'm going to submit a manuscript. They're going to love it. And then we'll release it. In reality, I will probably <laughs> submit a manuscript and we might have to adjust the publishing schedule from there. But maybe not. I, you know, so f I'm, I'm on schedule. And so far, so good. So I think it's safe to say this time next year, you'll be able to buy the book. And I encourage you to buy one and buy one for all your friends. Um, Absolutely. Leave a review. And uh, lucascantermusic.com is the best place to learn about me. I am uh, sort of pathologically averse to social media. So if you do want to get in touch with me and tell me uh, what an idiot I am for something I said on this podcast or tell me how brilliant I am and how much I changed your life, uh, you can go to my website and you can email me. And I would love to hear from you. Also, my podcast, which you were so kind to mention, Book Society is available it's weekly and that has a website too booksocietypod.com where you can reach me and uh with questions about the show or whatever awesome well i'm i'm really looking forward to the book and and i think your work is fantastic so thanks again for taking the time today thank you thanks for having me <laughs>